And so let me pray for us that God will actually give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Lord, we come this morning as a people who are distracted, who have a lot of other things on our mind, and often when you are working in our very midst, we do not see what you want us to see. We are looking for things that we want to see, and we miss the things that you want us to see. And so this morning we pray as we read these kind of odd little stories in your gospel, the gospel of John, Lord, that you would um, open our ears and open our eyes to see uh, what you'd have us see from the life of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is John 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And he said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And then people, when, excuse me, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples, his disciples, believed in him. This is the first part of the word of the Lord this morning. So, odd story, right? Like, as far as signs go, right, the more obnoxious, the better, right? I mean, am I wrong? Like when you're driving down the highway and it's like, you know, 11 p.m. at night, I don't know about you, you're kind of in a daze, but then there's that billboard that's like flashing bright lights. You're like, oh, whoa, what, what, oh, free tacos, exit 88. You're like, okay, we're going there, right? Like they, they usually make these huge kind of the bigger, the better, the brighter, the louder, right? You, you see that. And yet here we have Jesus. Who is, who is starting his ministry, right? He just called the disciples last week, right? He was, so we're, we're at the very beginning of the story, and we're getting his first sign, the text tells us, and we start in verse 1. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, right? It might as well be saying, on the, on the third day, there was a wedding, right, in Radford or Giles or, you know, Pembroke or somewhere obscure, right? Cana of Galilee is not a significant place. It's a sleepy little town kind of in the middle of nowhere outside of the public eye. So what we're seeing this morning is we're seeing kind of two ways, two ways of living, right? And so when we talk about, you know, even Jesus says later, right, I am the way. And so we have these signs that he sets up so we would know the right way to walk. And so we're going to get two kind of portraits as Jesus keeps doing. He kind of gives us these pictures of well, the way it looks like to walk with him and the way not to walk with him. And so we're going to look at two ways this morning, and I'll kind of give you the language of what those ways are as we unpack them. But the first way, so what we're going to do is look at kind of six characteristics, six kind of brief little characteristics, because the next story in the second part of this chapter is juxtaposition against this story. 
So a lot of these stories, if you've, if you've grown up hearing Bible stories, you've, you've often heard these two stories, but often we don't connect that they're right next to each other. Like, why are these stories together? They don't even chronologically fit next to each other, and yet we're in chapter 2, the very kind of beginning of the Gospel of John, and he does these kind of, this, this positioning of these two stories next to each other is kind of odd, and we have to ask, why are these here, and why are these here like this? So the first thing that we want to notice about this first way, this first kind of way that we can live, is, is this first observation of this story is that it's quiet, right? It's obscure. He, he chooses to do his sign in a quiet and subtle way. He does it in a small town at a small wedding, and not even everyone in the wedding gets to see the sign. So it's not like he goes and says, hey, uh, hey, can I get everyone's attention, please? Uh, I'm the Messiah. I want to make a kind of a show of this. I want you to see this, okay? I'm about to do something really cool. I'm going to turn this water into wine, and you're going to want to see this. It's kind of a big deal. L- let me do this. Oh, wow, man, wow, Jesus is great. He doesn't do that. He does this kind of very odd, quiet thing that he even kind of seems reluctant to do, right? Mary comes to him and says, hey, they're out of wine. And so Jesus is like, okay, like, I, do I look like a wine dispenser? Like, what, I, what, what, why are you asking me, right? He actually says that to her. He's like, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And yet, we get him doing this miracle. So the first thing we want to observe is that it's quiet. It's small. It's kind of out of the way, right? It's this private thing that not many people get to see. So the first observation of this first way is there's a quiet way and a private way that he's doing it. The second thing we want to see is there's a relational nature to it. And I think the relational nature is important because it it juxtapositions the second story that we're about to see. And if you look at verse 6, we kind of get a little bit of a breadcrumb here that leads us to kind of the, the intent where it says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. So you have a religious leader right, who's going to be doing miraculous signs, specifically making wine potentially, you would think that he would look at these jars and go, yeah, yeah, these, these aren't the best fit. Like these are, these are for Jewish like worship stuff. So these are off limits. But he basically says, look, what I'm about to do is more important than the original purpose for these kind of Jewish r- rituals and rites. I'm going to take these and I'm going to use them for his own purposes. So we start to see, wait, wait a minute, shouldn't he be regarding kind of the, the worship ritual? Shouldn't he be thinking about that? Why is he not considering that? But he, he's basically saying, no, no, this is more important. And again, I want you to notice, this, this has always been a weird story to me. Like, he's not saving anyone's life. He's not healing any, like, sickness. He's not raising any dead person. He's not, he does all these things later in his ministry, but here, his first sign basically is just a relational favor that he does to keep someone from public shame. It's like, yeah, it's not that big a deal. Worst case, the, the, the host goes, well, yeah, we ran out of wine. You know, Mary's concerned about it. And so Jesus hears the request of his mother, and he, he does it. He fills these jars. So it's this quiet and private thing. The second thing we notice is it's relationally driven. He's concerned about the wedding guests. He's concerned about the, the hosts who are there, right? He, he's, he's concerned about these people in something that, to be real honest, isn't a pressing, important issue, but it is to Jesus. So there's kind of a relational nature here that he, he is teasing out. Third thing we see is that there's an abundance, right? There's an abundance, I even saw one article that says, and the title of the article was, why did he make so much wine, right? So like, so not only does he make wine, I want you to notice, so there were six 
stone water jars that held 20 to 30 gallons each. One kind of commentator did all the math out and said it's about 1,000 bottles of wine. Okay, so the, 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 po the party has already drank up the original wine, so there was a bunch of wine there for the party guests. They drank all of that already. That's what the, the text says that. Um, this isn't, you know, me trying to, you know, overcome Baptist lore here, right? Like, it, it, the text says they drank all of that wine, they ran out, and then he brings out a thousand more bottles of wine, right? So the picture here is that not only does Jesus desire to, to, uh, to serve and love the people who are there, but he brings a thousand bottles, abundance to the table to make sure that there's plenty there for the celebration, right? This is, a, this is all kind of Old Testament rich. You look at all the prophets and there's all this language in Hosea and in Amos and Isaiah and these different Ezekiel where they talk about the flowing wine the abundance that God brings. It's all rich with that metaphor. And notice, not only is Jesus not offended that they have alcohol at the party, this is alcoholic wine. This isn't grape juice, as a lot of people want to say. It's just, it's, but it, now, it's not as alcoholic as our wine is today, but it is an alcoholic beverage. And Jesus not only is not offended, he's at the party, he brings more alcohol to the table. So we've got to be careful. This is not Jesus uh, encouraging drunkenness, but this is also not Jesus saying, we should never have alcohol. So there's reasons to never have alcohol. There's reasons to, they call that teetotaling. There's, a re, there's reasons for that. There's, and there's some people do that, and that's totally fine. But this text is a clear text where Jesus is making alcohol. He's bringing it to the party. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, God in the flesh, shows up at the party with a thousand bottles of wine. Do with it what you want. Amen. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> wine maketh the heart glad. That's from the Psalms. Uh, yeah, yeah. We have to talk about it. You know, we can talk. So there's abundance. The, 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 the third, a fourth observation we want to make is this. Jesus knows how to practice joy. He knows how to celebrate. And, I, and to be real honest, we are terrible at this. We either are gluttons, meaning we're just always celebrating, or we're on the other end where we're just always depressed. We need to be, be able to people who have, a, who have the myriad of circumstances and we know how to celebrate in abundance because our God is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, has a cattle on a thousand hills. He's able to bring to bear whatever he wants to bring to bear. And we need to be able to be a people. We need to, Christians need to be people. People who follow Jesus need to be people who celebrate well right, who know how to practice joy, which again is not the world's definition, right? I need to be able to get a cancer diagnosis. Brett, you have lung cancer and still have joy, okay, to still be able to participate in the joy of God regardless of our circumstance. So I'm not just saying a flippant thing. I need to know and be able to practice how to celebrate joy, and Jesus is showing us how to do that. He's right here at this kind of tiny little wedding, and man, he is living it up, and he is enjoying being with these people. And again, I keep talking about The Chosen. They have a great depiction of this. It's a great little uh, you know, series on, on the life of Christ, The Chosen. They have a great little depiction of this, and it's so fun to see in their depiction Jesus on the dance floor, right? Because, you know, it's like sometimes we, we're like, okay, well, I, you know, I don't want to, you know, I just don't want to be, okay. Just. Yeah, we should be the people, right? Be best compliment I ever got after I did a wedding. 
walking to my car after the ceremony. Someone walked up and they said, hey, hey, the service was fine. The dance floor, man, <laughs> you killed it. And I was like, <clears throat> that's right. That's how we do in the kingdom. Come on. So anyway, we need to be able to be people who know how to celebrate, know how to have a good time in, in the right ways, right? In beautiful ways, ways that point, as we talk about signs, right? Point to the beauty of Christ and not to our own foolishness, but to joy, to real, actual joy. Okay, so that's the fourth observation. Five and six are critical. These two observations. Okay, look at what it says in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, doubling down on the obscurity of this place. This is, this is Cana of Galilee. This is not somewhere important. This is Cana. It's middle of nowhere. This is not an important town in the scheme of Israelite history. It's a little bitty, little uh, backwoods kind of city, right? And, and look what it says, and manifested his glory. So these are, these are two of the kind of results of what Jesus did. So the first result is that he manifested his glory. Now think about that. So we throw these terms around, like he manifested his glory. When you think about manifestations of glory, right, luminescence, fame, and, and just the, 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 the actual bigness and scale and the glory of God. Wait, so we're, we're manifesting the beauty and the bigness and the scale and the, and the fame and wonder of God. Wine at a small wedding that only a few people saw. What is he talking about? So what we are meant to see as we even hear that language is he is developing this theme of glory as we work our way through John. We're going to get to John 17, and he says this. He says, the glory, Father, that you gave to me, I'm giving to them. What he means is something other than just fame for fame's sake. He does this in a quiet way. And look at what, what we see right after that. It says, and it manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So what he's doing with his glory is he is displaying it in ways that are odd to us. He's displaying his glory in ways that often to us we move right by, right? How many of you, if I said, hey, little Bible quiz, give me your top story for how God manifested his glory. Go. Wedding at Cana. Zero of you would say that. Maybe after today you would. But right, like this is a weird place to look for the manifestation of the glory of God. Maybe, maybe Moses on the mountain, right, where he meets with God and he has the, the bright glowing face, the burning bush, a dividing of the sea. I mean, there's a lot of really powerful, popular places. And yet here we see these people. So two results, right? He, manifestation of his glory is, is observation five. Observation six is, six is look, at, look at what it produces. And his disciples believed in him. Now, I say that because there's a lot of people in this ministry of Jesus that we're going to see who see all kinds of things that Jesus says, all kinds of things, and they don't care. They go, wow, that's neat, and they go about their lives. But these small band of people are sitting there, and they see what's happening. Instead of going like, I mean, we're in Canaan. Like, who cares? Okay, he, he, he made more wine, whatever. These guys see what happened, and they go, Man, look at God is doing in our midst. They receive, right? Think about John 1 when we read this. Let's, let's re this is kind of critical. This is the whole kind of thesis of the book, John 1, 11. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who are not 
born not of blood or who were born not of blood nor of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. So here are these guys who have this posture of we we want to see whatever whatever you want to show us Jesus. You want to make wine a water into wine? Oh yeah. What do you want to do? This is going to become really important. So here's here's one of my questions I'm going to ask you which we're going to pit against another question later is are you looking to receive the things that God is doing in your midst or do you have your own list of what you think God should be doing in your midst? I think this is rampant throughout our lives is that God is doing powerful things in our homes, in our relationships, in our workplaces and we are oblivious to them because they do not fit with our agenda. And we're going like, well, psh, whatever. I-, I want these things. So are we ready to receive, which John kind of interplays that language of receive and believe. We're ready to receive what God is actually showing us. Are we looking for the signs that is our posture? Lord, you show me the signs you want to show me. You do the things you want to do, and I'm excited to see. Or is it more like, well, here's the things you probably should do. And if you don't do these things, I'm kind of disinterested. Okay, so the first way, we said there's two ways. The first way is the way of joy, the way of joy. And then we saw six observations of the way of joy, right? That Jesus is inviting us into this life, this life that has abundance and joy and laughter and life, right? Where we see the abundance that God brings. We see that here, right? This is the, this is the lamb, the quiet sacrificial lamb that we see, the kind of the meek one, right? Gentle and lowly. We have those books, I don't know if you've read it, Gentle and Lowly. Uh, Gavin, no, Ray Ortland, Gavin Ortland. Gavin Ortland, great, great book. We have a bunch of copies in the library. Dane, sorry, all the brothers. Anyway, Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly, that's what we see. Now, here's the beautiful thing. So we love this story. It's a cute little story. The Lamb of God shows up to a wedding, brings the wine, fun. Have you ever noticed what comes next? So he does this quiet, private, beautiful, abundant, joyful thing. And wouldn't it be nice to just make Jesus just that? The tame, party-bringing, joyful Jesus. Man, let me just, let's just keep him there. Well, the text continues. Let's read verses 12 through 22. Now, I want you to notice, so we just did the wedding at Cana, this obscure, kind of nice, celebratory, joy-filled story. This is the life that Jesus is inviting us into, and then we get this story. Starting in verse 12, after this, he went to, down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of money of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. The disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, when, uh, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, 
and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. We'll stop right there. Man, the tame Jesus at the party, what happened to that guy? Really got riled up there. So this is an interesting story. Now, all the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have this account at the end of the life of Jesus as one of the final straws for him to be crucified by the Jewish authorities because he angers them with his behavior. And yet John, second chapter, the second chapter of his Gospel, decides to place this story right next to the wedding at Cana. Why? It's weird. Now, we got a little breadcrumb, like I said, in verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars that were there for the Jewish rites of purification. We are getting a, an understanding that Jesus has come to upend our expectations of what we think of, uh, of Messiah, of King Jesus. Lest we become people who think it's about these observations that we're about to see. Notice what he does. So he's in an obscure backwater little town of Cana. And then where's the next story? In the most prominent, most public, most influential place in all of Israel, not only Jerusalem, but the very temple itself, the epicenter of the Jewish religion, he shows up there, the loudest place that you could possibly show up after basically going to the quietest place you possibly could be. So the, the, the second way that we're going to look at, the second way, the first thing we notice about the second way is that it's public. He does this publicly. Not only is it public, it's disruptive, right? So if we're thinking, okay, the Messiah, where's he going to be? Well, he'll probably be at the temple. So he goes to the temple, he, he walks in there, and instead of walking in and being like, oh man, this is great, he makes a whip out of cords and starts flipping tables and tossing things out and disrupting the whole process, the whole thing that's happening there, this whole process of worship. He is disrupting the practice of worship at the temple. What is happening? If we're reading this story right, we're paying attention, we're going like, wait a second, I thought you said he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's the Son of Man, he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, like all of those titles are all in chapter 1. Like, okay, so if he's that guy, what is happening here? Again, this is exactly what we're to think as we're reading this. This is intentionally placed in the narrative to go, whatever you think of Messiah, you might want to double check your expectations. You might want to reboot on who God says he is and make sure that you're not recasting God in your own image. So that as we read about Messiah, we're going like, wait a second. So he's going to the temple where they need oxen, they need sheep, they need pigeons. They need those things in order to do the sacrifices. Well, how are they going to perform worship if they don't have the... Like, these guys are helping out with worship. Like, why are you doing this, Jesus? Yeah, we need to ask that question. So Jesus goes. He goes to the place of worship, this public place. He disrupts what's happening there. He is not bringing joy like he did to the wedding. He's bringing judgment. He is bringing judgment. He is saying, the stuff that's happening here is not honoring to God. So I ask you this question. You got two scenarios. There's a worship service. They got great music. They have Bibles open. They're all wearing, you know, they're all wearing the properly modest dress. There's, you know, it's not too low, not too high, not too, everything's right. They look the part, right? So you have that picture. And then on the other side, you have fat beats being dropped at a wedding reception, right? 
Everyone's sitting around going like, I just don't know if I can sit here any longer. I got to get up. I got to move. I got to, you know, just that, that beat. It's just getting to me. You know, and you have dancing. You have people having wine. They're having a good time. They're making some noise. They're laughing. Right? They're doing all that. You got these two pictures. Which event is the Messiah showing up to and tossing tables? Right? He's going to go over here and go, is that a keg? Oh, my gosh. Get that out of here. Uh-uh. Oh, is that dancing? Oh, unbelievable. Dancing. We're Baptists. I can't believe that. I'm offended. Which event is he showing up to? And what did Jesus continually get criticized for by the religious leaders? You're hanging out with sinners, drunkards. You're feasting all the time. Who is this guy? I say again, we better be careful about the way in which we cast our king and the way in which we portray him. Again, he is not a drunkard, but man, there is nobody in all of history who knew how to celebrate and rejoice like Jesus did. And he shows up to a place of worship and says, this, uh-uh, tossing tables. So it's public, it's disruptive, it's a judgment. And look at the response. So we talk about the, uh, you know, and there's, instead of wine, he brings whips, right? So what is he fashioning at the worship service? Not wine. He's not celebrating that. No, no, he actually forms a whip and then drives the animals out of the, ta- out of the, out of the uh, temple. So look at the response, right? Look at the response we get from the Pharisees and the Jews in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, I think they're meaning the Jewish leaders, right? You have to, and I want to be clear, all of his disciples, the first disciples were all Jewish. So these are the Jewish leaders said to him, look at this, what sign? What sign? How dare you? You rolling up in our temple, what sign do you bring that you can come in here and toss tables and throw people? How dare you? What sign do you bring? So what, what do they have? Do, did we hear, do we hear anybody in the first miracle saying, hey, you need to show us a sign, Jesus. We're not going to follow you. You need, you need to show us signs. Funny, they're not asking, and yet they're ready to receive. They have a posture of receptivity. They're saying like, man, we're with Jesus, and they're just watching. They're watching Jesus do what Jesus does, and instead of saying like, prove it, prove it, well, how, how dare you? How, how can you say that? They're just watching what's happening, and he just, just takes this, this minor, small, celebratory little miracle of making wine, and they receive it. They believe on Jesus, watching him do obscure things, and then Jesus goes in judgment, and they demand signs. Quoting from the other Gospels, and even from Corinthians, where it says the Jews demand signs. So that's my question to us, is do we come with a posture of receptivity, or do we come with a posture of demand? i got to be real honest. Most of the prayers I've prayed in my life is this. Lord, if you were really God, you would do X, Y, and Z. And until you do X, Y, and Z, until my friend comes to Christ, until my bills are paid, until I feel better, you're not getting my worship. Prove it. Is that the posture that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is looking for for those who follow him? What Jesus wants is he wants us to come and say, Lord, you do all kinds of beautiful and strange things. Do what you do, and I am watching, and I am waiting, and I am listening. And too often we come, and we hear the word of God. We read the scriptures, and we go, that's a weird story. Let's move on and go watch something on Netflix. That makes more sense to me. That's what I want to see. 
It's what I want to hear. Do we come with a posture of receptivity or do we come with a posture of demand? And the Pharisees over and over and over and over are demanding that Jesus get on their agenda and do the things they want him to do. Jesus will have nothing to do with that conversation. He says, you need to trust me. The joy that he's offering, the life that he's offering looks very different than what you expect, just like he does here. So the result is rejection, right? They reject and, and then he wraps the whole thing up. Again, we're in chapter two. Remember, he's developing his narrative. We're in chapter two and look at what it says at the end of our narrative. When therefore he was raised from the dead. You know, if you're a newbie and you're reading the story, it's like, uh, I'm not an expert on the story, but that doesn't come till way later. And yet he drops it in here. He's basically saying, hey, you're looking for signs? You want to know what he does? Do you want to know who he is? Do you want to know how he works? Yeah, he makes water into wine. He celebrates and rejoices and dances and laughs, and he brings joy like you cannot fathom. And if you want to see signs, I got a sign for you. This is the final of all the signs, the best of all the signs, the biggest, the brightest, and the best of any sign is that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords became flesh, died on a cross, was slain for our sin, and was raised from the dead. And so now you and I have with pristine clarity all of the signs, and we have the key to all of them, and that key is the death and resurrection of Jesus, our King. We don't have to figure it out. He's laid it all out for us, pristinely clear. The resurrection of Jesus is the sign of the ages, and he gives us the sign of the ages, and we herald that sign and say, you want to know what life with Jesus is like? Let me tell you about a man who died and lives again. You're addicted to something? Let me tell you about a man who died and lives again. You struggle with sin? Let me tell you about a man who died and lives again. He comes to slay our enemies, the enemy of sin, to deal with it in us, to conquer the grave, right? He broke every chain. He's setting us free. When we believe upon him, we are born not of the will of men, but the will of God. We are born anew. He's setting the stage. Do you guys know what comes in John chapter three? If you haven't read the story, he's setting the stage for us to go, what kind of king are we talking about? Well, John three next week is gonna be talking about his conversation with Nicodemus about new birth, new life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and now by faith in Christ, we become new. Man, good news. So our, our charge is to say there's two ways. There's a way of joy and there's a way of judgment. There's, a way, there's only two ways, right? We can put all sorts of other brands on the way of judgment, but it's the way of joy, which is the way of Jesus, which comes by the slaying of the Lamb of God, but there's also the way of judgment. These are the two options. And what Jesus is saying is like, come with me, believe upon me, do not walk in this way. Be a people who come not with demand, but who come saying, I want what you are giving. Who come with receptivity. So I ask you the question again, are we coming? Are we coming to receive? I even think about when we come to worship, are we coming to receive? Are we coming to hear from God what he wants to say, or are we master editors like our forefather, Thomas Jefferson, who loves to cut out his little parts that he doesn't like, throw those out and go, no, I like these parts. Or are we going to go, Lord, teach me what I need to hear today? I didn't come to hear a sermon about the wedding at Cana. Yeah, you did. That was God's will. It just 
happened. And how do we come with receptivity and not demand? How can our posture be one of saying, Lord, you have your way in me. So hear me. This way of joy, the irony of all of this is that Jesus walks the road of judgment and takes our judgment so that we can walk on the way of joy. That you and I deserve judgment. You and I deserve to be uh, condemned. You and I deserve judgment. And yet Jesus says, even with your foolishness, uh, he takes all of that payment on himself. And if we will receive from him, we can have life and joy everlasting where the uh, wine flows in abundance and glory. So may we be a people as we, as we study these scriptures, as we hear from God to say, God, what do you want to teach me? How do I need to shift? How do I need to learn from you and eat from you and partake from you? How can I be someone who receives, who does not come with my demands, but who comes to be commanded and told where to go, what to do, how to find joy? May we be that kind of a people by the glory of God, right? This, this weird right? Obscure glory that he's offering to us that's really different from what we think. May we be people who love our neighbors well and lay down our lives and who are never spoken of, but that people would see Jesus in all that we do. I have a friend of mine, a pastor in Australia. He's preached here before. He has this great little moniker, faithful and then forgotten. Would we be a people who are happy to bring the joy of the kingdom to bear on people's lives and they would behold Jesus, though they might forget our names, but they would know our king and they would find life abundant in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you're a God who, who understands, who sees and loves us and, and meets us in the small canas of the world the Radfords of the world, that you see us and you come for us and you, you, you pour out your life for us so that we can walk the road of joy, the joy of the gospel of Christ. Though we deserve judgment, though we've been obstinate and rebellious and drunk and what all the other things that we have been over the years, you come to redeem us out from that life that we would walk in a new way. Lord, help us to trust you, to receive from you, and not be a people who have a posture of approve it to me, Lord, demand, but that we would be a people ready to receive from you, from your hand. You are so good. May we be people who rejoice in your abundance and, and rejoice in the kind of joy that you are offering us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.